All right, welcome to SVU Pod, especially heinous. I'm Gabe. I'm Tasha. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah, welcome to SVU Pod, especially heinous. We're here together. Yeah. Today we have season five, episode 23, Bound. When they when they say the word for, you know, how when it's like they're bound and you're like, oh, that's why it's named that. Oh, mm-hmm. When fucking Wong did that, I was like, no, no, <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> Stupid. This is not. I always go to minority. Rep- I'm like, this is not minority report. But I was like. Do they even say that in that movie? It's the one I always go to where I was like, it's the minority report. We're in the war of the worlds. I think that I just go to Tom Cruise movies. This is a mission impossible. We're in Jurassic. It doesn't really work that way, does it? (laughs) Welcome. Welcome to Jurassic Park. You're like, well, yeah, what else would they say? Welcome to Dinoville 1993. (laughs) Okay. Opening scene, there's a bougie real estate agent and a client, and they enter into a brownstone. The real estate agent is being all pushy, and the lady's like, um, I'd like to fucking see the place before we talk numbers, dude. She's like, it's gonna go quick. Come into brownstone. They walk into a room and see broken shit all over the floor. Yeah, I know. It's a brownstone. She actually was a Muppet. Her face was made of felt. <laughs> they walk into a room and see broken shit all over the floor, and then they see an elderly couple on the floor. The client flips, you know, of course, calls 911 and says they need cops because they're two dead people. Just then, the older man reaches out and he gasps for help. Yeah. And then the client looks at the realtor and goes, so price drop? (laughs) Fast forward a little bit. CSU and SVU are on the scene, of course. A CSU dude gives Stabler the updates. The dead woman is Uh, Donna Brooks. I'm sorry. What? Kyle, your hair is looking stunning or hollering. Oh. (laughs) I never know who he is. It's always you. Dead ladies, Donna Brooks, for the greater good. She's 70 years old. She was raped and strangled. There are no signs of forced entry into the home and no security cameras. CSU doesn't know why this other guy was in the house. Richard. His name is Richard Sutton. He's still on the scene on a stretcher. He's about to be loaded into the ambulance. There's no marks or bruises on him. And they kind of think he's having a heart attack. As they're wheeling him out of Brownstone, Stabler is walking along and trying to talk to him. And EMS is there. And he keeps saying, Donna, Donna, I'm sorry. And then Stabler's like, well, what are you sorry for? And then he flatlines. EMS has Stabler do CPR compressions while they do the shock defibrillator thingy. Mm -hmm. I was like, don't they have up to like a tertiary? They're like, do you know CPR? And he's like, you guys are EMS. Yeah, it was weird. You'd think they'd be like, move over, suit and tie. Yeah. They get the pulse back and then they load Sutton into the ambulance. Benson shows up and she's like, what the fuck happened? Is that the victim? And he's like, no, I think it's the perp. So now they think this guy's the one that did it. Which is wild because like he was saying, I'm sorry, Donna. Like maybe he's sorry that... He couldn't help her, or maybe, I don't know. It's just a quick jump. Right. Stabler makes a lot of those. Yeah. In the, yeah, yeah. In this episode, especially, yeah. For sure. In the precinct, Benson, Stabler, and Craig are doing a little walk and talk. Benson says Sutton is still unconscious in the cardiac intensive care. Stabler says his neighbors say he keeps to himself and nobody really knows him that much. Craigan wonders why he was at Donna's house. He goes, what's he doing hanging out with the queen at a charity balls? I wrote, apparently she's the queen of the charity balls. Queen of the charity balls. That was my nickname in high school. Yeah, right. <laughs> she's a wealthy widow. Benson thinks Sutton's maybe her boyfriend. 
they're tossing around two different ideas here. Donna and Sutton have sex, get into an argument, things got violent in some sort of domestic dispute. Sutton kills Donna, then has a heart attack, or he finds Donna dead and has a heart attack. Donna's family should know if her and Sutton were in a relationship. Benson tells them that Donna's daughter, Josette, is on the way to the precinct right now from Joyzy. The marks on Donna's neck are very distinct, but no rope or anything was found. CSU is still checking at the house, though. Coroner Warner puts a time of death at 10 p.m. the night before. All of a sudden, Donna's daughter, Josette, shows up. Benny and Stabes pull Josette into an interview room to talk, and she tells them that Donna was selling her house because Josette was forcing her to. She wanted Donna to come live with her and her family. Donna had lymphoma with less than a year to live. She worked out every morning at 5 a.m. and told her daughter she needed to keep it tight because there's a lot of competition for a good man. She dated a lot. Eyebrows. Everybody's like <sighs> fucking giving her shit this whole time. I'm like, good for her, dude. I know. Th- Josette's embarrassed even. Her mom's out living her best whole life. I was all for yeah. it. And Sabre's like, so she's sexually active then? And she's like, ugh. And Sabre's like, wowzer. Yeah. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Basically you barfed into a bag. Old people be <laughs> fucking Josette and Stabes. Okay. Josette had told her mom to be careful with dating because she's a fucking adult woman. Ugh. Josette doesn't recognize the name Richard Sutton, but says her mom was seeing a man named Harvey Cohen, a dance instructor who worked over at Hot to Trot and taught her how to tango. Get it, Donna? Mm-hmm. Benny and Stabes head over to the dance studio. Instead of professionally asking Harvey Cohen to step out of the room to chat, Benny cuts in on the dance floor. They two-step while she questions him. They don't. Uh, she's like, hey, can I cut in and they walk away but it was a weird way to go about it she's like hey can Mm -hmm. i cut in like you're a professional detective working a case there's a dead woman imagine imagine if a cop came to your work imagine if a cop came to your work and did the exact same thing like he's getting tattooed he's halfway through his inner wrist infinity symbol and goes pulls out a fucking badge yeah, he's like, <laughs> yeah. so gabe where were you last saturday night between nine and ten and you're like are you what like, you have to pay me still like what <laughs> yeah and he's like i'll never turn on a beautiful woman and he puts his arms up and she's like psych here's my badge and he's like why don't you just be like excuse, excuse me, me sir, sir i'm an officer like quick. what are we doing yeah so this guy harvey has a fancy moneyed old white guy way of speaking and to yeah. me he looks like donald sutherland he does yeah that's a good one yeah mm-hmm. he says that donna was in class every monday and he and donna had a standing date every week benny asks him oh so you were having an affair and this fucking wasp <laughs> shame on you detective a gentleman doesn't kiss and tell Stabler sidles up out of absolutely fucking nowhere. A gentleman doesn't rape and murder his girlfriend. Whoa. He's like doing the Charleston. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> Benz is like, chill, dude. He dabs and he's like, I canceled the day before because she'd been flirting with another man during class. What kind of a whore does that? Women aren't allowed to do that. I told her to take her boy toy and get out. The other man was younger, hotter, I guess, Ben Pauler. Harvey Mm. described him as being young enough to be Donna's son. Again, Mm. disgusting. It's like, that's so weird. It happens all the time with dudes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm dating my granddaughter's best friend. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't fucking Al Pacino going to be a new dad? He's like 700 years old and his girlfriend's 70. Yeah. She's pregnant. Just had a kid. Cut to Ben's apartment. This fucking guy. Please, Ben, don't bother to button your shirt, dude. Just, okay. Ben says that he and Donna left class and went back to her place. What's the big deal? 
Uh. Stabler's mm-hmm. like, well, she was 40 years older than you, and everyone knows that women over 30 are to be thrown away and discontinued from sexual <laughs> circulation. Ben yes. disagrees yeah. and tells them that older women are fucking awesome. And right off the bat, I'm like, I'm sorry I told you to button up your shirt, buddy. You just just do what you need to do. But then he goes yeah. on, and he's a total douchebag. He, he's a total douche yeah. after that, yeah. But he's just like, you should try it sometime. They're super experienced and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, is this the only support we get from guys like this? <laughs> from this fucking douche. Douchefuck. A guy who can't afford a shirt with all the buttons on it. Mm-hmm. They tell Ben that Donna was murdered the night before, and Ben gets this blank look on his face and says, Donna was fine when he left her. Wait, no, she was satisfied. Ouch. Uh, like, that's not ouch. I mean, that's fucking gross. Yeah, you just found out she's dead, buddy. Stabler doesn't like it either. He also doesn't like that people fuck old ladies. And he grabs Ben so hard and he pushes him down. He's like, what time did you leave Donna's? And Ben's like, 9.15. The person who can confirm this <laughs> is Marion. Boom, a glamorous, gone-with-the-wind older woman comes into the room in a silk robe and pearls. She picked Ben up at 9.15 from Donna's house. And I was like, damn! Yeah, it was very, she spun out, just... Mm -hmm. A pink silk robe. So, I don't recognize her from anything, but I looked her up, and her real name is Carmen Del Orifice. I was like, is that a porn name? Carmen Del Orifice. Yeah. Wow. Now we're at the precinct. Benson and Stabler do a little walk and talk. Benson says that Donna, quote, got around. And I'm like, quote, good for her. <laughs> yeah. Stabler says that she was probably trying to make the most out of life. We're Lucille Bluth this entire episode. Yes, totally. He's like, oh, she was probably just trying to make the best of her life. Yeah. Not necessarily because she's dying, but yeah. Just like li- living her life. She was, oh, she was living her life, I guess. Ooh. Getting porked and going dancing and having been rich. Like, what the fuck? Right. She <laughs> went to dinner at 430 and said, I'll have the pork and was just living her life. <laughs> Here's what I wrote. It's so wild that this shit is never said about old guys with young girls. Just let people fuck, goddammit. Let them fuck. Toots comes in. He has an update on Sutton. He's still intubated and he can't be seen yet. Turns out Sutton has been married four times. The way he said it, though, he was like, he has four wives. And I was like, whoa. And then it turns out it's not. The first three wives died of natural causes and the fourth wife is still alive and she's rich. Apparently he treats them like shit because she filed a domestic violence last year. Mm-hmm but she dropped the complaint. Her social security checks go to an address in Queens. So now Benson and Stabler are at Jackson Heights Elder Care Facility. They're talking to Mrs. Alexis Sutton. She has Alzheimer's and she only remembers her first husband, Marty, who was the love of her life, her one true love, and died in Korea. Marty. I know. So this woman plays Aunt Helen. Remember the sh- remember the show Louis? Before we knew Louis C.K. was yeah. terrible, she was Aunt Helen, yeah. and he and his daughters went to go visit her, and she was really racist. Oh, such, such a good episode. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen that one. One of the workers comes in and he apologizes for being late and says, your message said that you wanted to talk about Richard Sutton. Alexis gets mad and she's like, it's Marty. His name is Marty. And then she kind of walks off. Stabler asks this guy if Alexis is so rich, why is she in this fucking place? No offense, of course. Is she in this <laughs> dump with you and your dump ass? <laughs> I know. It's exactly like, it's like no offense or anything, but this place sucks and so do you. But I mean... <laughs> Your parents are probably really disappointed in where you ended up in life, but like, why is she here? Right. Dude says that Sutton married Alexis and then put her in a low-income care facility so that he could live a luxurious life off her money. 
piece mm. of shit. Sutton only visits when he needs her to sign something. Sailor's like, well, she's in no fucking condition to sign anything. And he's like, I filed a complaint, but nothing happened. Sutton is her husband and has every right to do what he wants with the money, which is fucking bullshit. And I bet this happens a lot. Oh, yeah. With her kids and whatever. People are garbage. Yeah. Especially our culture. Like, we don't take care of our elderly. Mm-mm. He was like, this is her husband and he has every right to do with money whatever he wants. And Benson's like, including romancing other women. And then dude's like, if you call slapping around women romantic. After Sutton's last visit, Alexis was found on the floor covered in bruises. The staff guy didn't report it because he didn't actually see Sutton do it. And Alexis said she'd fallen out of the bed. Or must have fallen. She didn't really know what happened. Yeah. So he couldn't do anything. Stabler is getting visibly worked up. This fucking Sutton guy is going to answer my goddamn questions. So now we're at the hospital. Sutton is in bed. He's got a tube down his fucking mouth or whatever. Stabler tells Sutton that they found his wife at the elder care facility. You know, the wife he stashed away at that dump in Queens with that dump truck of a dude that's a piece <laughs> of dump. You know, the dump guy with the, at the dump place. Sutton can't talk, but he manages to say, yeah, that guy's a pile of trash. His mom hates him. <laughs> yeah, so he can't talk, but he's like, ooh. Benson asked Sutton if Donna was his next victim. What, did Donna reject you? And then you fucking raped and killed her? And then he seems to get upset. And then she asks him how he got into the house. And he wants to write all these answers down. So she gives him a Sharpie and a pad of paper. Sutton writes down that he got in the house because it was open. He got there at 9 a.m. in the morning. The night before, Sutton was home alone, so he has no alibi. Sutton writes, quote, not killed last night on the notepad. He knows this because Donna exercises at 5 a.m. The windows were open, so when he got there, the house was freezing. He closed the windows and turned the heat up. Then it just like randomly cuts out. I was like, what does this mean? But then it goes to... In the ME office, Corner Warner says that Donna's temp was 86 degrees when she was found, 12 degrees lower than average. Postmortem bodies lose temperature at one degree every hour dead. So she just did the math based on that. She didn't account Mm -hmm. for the house to be cold or for Donna to have been working out. Exercise Mm -hmm. prior to death can cause rigor to set in faster and the cold caused the rapid decline of body temp. Corner Warner now says the time of death is 6 a.m. Mm. Benny and Staves are like, wow, cool. We didn't get any alibis for this morning. God. We gotta, we gotta go back now. Do more work. We're all doing our goddamn best over here. Jeez, Warner. She does have a little bit of new info for them, though. The ligature marks were unusual and don't match anything on the scene. The killer must have taken whatever they used with them. Then Corner Warner sent the image of Donna's injuries on her neck to the FBI so they could search their database to find a match to what it could be from, possibly. Mm -hmm. Benson thinks Huang can expedite that search because he is FBI. Mm -hmm. Over at the FBI, the weapon was identified as a very specific climbing rope that doesn't fray. That's why no fibers were left behind. Oh, Mm -hmm. dang it. Huang checked and there are 15 matches to other crimes that kind of rope was used in. But then they narrowed down... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So they narrowed down to match the MO of Donna's murder. Female Vic, age 60 to 80, strangulation homicide in her own home. That brings back Mm. two matches. Two other elderly women were killed the same way. Susan Zellman, who was 65, was killed two years ago in Brooklyn. And Claudia Wooding 
who's 70. She was killed three years ago in Piermont. We got a serial killer, y'all. Over to the precinct. The squad is hitting all the updates. Three wealthy elderly women, all in the metro area, all killed the same way. It's possible the perp was somebody who already knew them or the women were conned. Claudia Wooding's mm. son, Eddie, has a car dealership. He's a real schmuck mm-hmm. and was disinherited from her will. Mm. Susan Zellman's husband, Marvin, is still alive, but he's probably not a suspect, though. He's got RA and is in a wheelchair. The squad's mm-hmm. going to make contact with Eddie and Marvin to find a link between the victims. Benson and Stabler are doing a little walk and talk with Marvin in the park. Marvin's in a wheelchair. Oh, my God. What? It's Mr. Herlihy from Big Daddy. <laughs> He's on. Are you drunk, Mr. Hurley? I've had a few Chardonnays. What of it? I don't remember. Remember? Oh, Mm -hmm. the second I saw him, I was like, ah! (laughs) Oh, it's so good. Marvin's in a wheelchair and Benson and Stabler and Marvin's nurse are taking a little stroll. He says he'll never forgive himself for his wife's death. He was out playing bridge and feels guilty because she didn't want to go and he thinks he should have stayed home or it wouldn't have happened. And I was like, oh, Marvin, it's not your fault. You would have been killed too, Marvin. Yeah. Benson shows him a pic of Donna and the other victim. And then this made me hate Marvin. Oh. He, because they were walking and he just, he just does this little like, doesn't even oh, look at Oh, yes. Woman. He just does this like wave like to stop. And I'm like, can you just say that? Can you just be like, hey, can we stop for a second? You know, because like, the woman, his caregiver uh, or his nurse, she was quietly just pushing his wheelchair. Yeah. While they were doing their walk and talk. And uh, yeah, I noticed that, too, that he gave her a little like mm, to get her to stop. I'm like, like oh, do you fucking snap for waitresses, too, dude? I hate you now, Marvin. Or at least say her name. Be like, Caroline, could you? Gloria. Yeah. <laughs> Gloria. Or whatever. <laughs> Anyways, he doesn't recognize the pictures and says his wife didn't know Donna or the other victim. And he says he knew all of her friends. Munch and Toots go to speak with Eddie at the dealership. Eddie's a real fucking piece of shit, all right? He doesn't give a fuck about any of this. He's just like, I doesn't care if his mom died. Right. He says he doesn't know if his mom knew Donna or any other victim. He's like, how the fuck would I know? I didn't fucking kill her. And then it cuts to Marvin, that whole thing where they go back and forth. Mm-hmm. He can't imagine anyone hurting his wife, Susan. In the initial investigation, the police thought the perp that killed Susan was a drug addict looking to steal money, but nothing was taken. What? Then it cuts back to Eddie. He says, Bitch didn't leave me a dime. Wow, dude, that's your mom. Right. He completely denies the murder and says, what's the big deal? She was about to die anyways. She was about to kick the bucket, he said, from lung cancer. And I was like, oh, my God, it's a fucking medical professional. This is where I start, like, queuing into this shit. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts back to Marvin. He says that Susan had breast cancer. The day she was killed was the day she was told by her oncologist she was in remission. Oh. And then Benson's like, who is this oncologist? Now Benson and Stabler are at the office of Dr. David Brelsford, Hudson University Hospital. So they're talking to him in his office. Susan and Claudia were both his patients. And Stabler's like, quite a coincidence, isn't it? Dr. David is irritated. And he's like, what is this all about? Uh Stabler asks if Donna was his patient too. But he says Donna isn't his patient, but she was treated at that hospital. And he wants to know why they are asking about her. And he knew that she was treated at that hospital, even though he wasn't her doctor immediately he's like no but uh yeah yeah she was yeah i thought there was gonna be way more with this david because like he was not really like it was weird yeah i'm like what did you do you did something maybe it's for another episode but you did something Mm -hmm. stabler tells him that she was murdered as well dr david assures them that if he killed someone they wouldn't know it was murder and i was like um okay and they're like ew david 
Ew. Stable was like, what? Is that like quoting Borat now? What? Is saying that oh. like quoting Borat? <laughs> Ew, David. You're like, yeah. oh, shnikes. <laughs> <laughs> What's up? <laughs> oh, gross. Where's the beef? <laughs> That's way old. So are we. <laughs> anyway, so Dr. David's like, what? I don't know. I'm busy. Go away. And Benson goes, no, and sits down. <laughs> yeah. Where were you yesterday at 6 a.m.? Dr. David says he was at home when Donna was killed, but he lives alone. Staler's like, okay, enough of this, dude. We have possibly three murder victims connected to you. You got to do better. What is going on? And then Dr. David's like, dudes, a lot of people are involved in the care of cancer patients, doctors, nurses, social workers, etc. He mentions in-home care as well. And they're like, well, who do you go through? He goes through RDH run by Dr. Spivak. Benny and Staves go to hit that home care office where they find Spivak's sister, Emma, who is the nurse manager. Are you fucking kidding me? It is Jane Krakowski. <sighs> Mm-hmm. She's been in everything. She's an amazing yes. actor, especially yeah. comedically. She's had, boom, long-running roles in 30 Rock, Schmigadoon, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Allie McBeal, Search for Tomorrow. She was in the Chicks music video for Goodbye Earl. Oh, I didn't remember that. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's in movies like Go, Ice Age, The Rocker. I mentioned that. Like I'm like, Rain Wilson, you guys. <laughs> Open season one and two, The Flintstones, Viva Rock Vegas, Fatal Attraction. One of her mm-hmm. first roles was as Cousin Vicky in National Lampoon's Vacation. Mm. She confirms that all three victims were patients that used RDH and that the victims all had the same nurse, Nurse Duval. Dr. Mm. Spivak then comes in. I know him without looking him up, okay? This is Anthony Rapp. He's burned into my memory as Tony from Dazed and Confused. That's what he was from. I was like, why do I know this guy? He's been in a yeah. million things, obviously, but he was also Daryl in Adventures in Babysitting and Mark in the original production of Rent. Spivak confirms that Gary Duval did work at RDH and says he was fired a few weeks ago when a patient accused him of stealing. That patient was Donna. <gasps> Gasp. Mm. Spivak's sister lets them know that Gary now works for Meals on Wheels. That's interesting to me because I didn't know, because my father-in-law volunteers for Meals on Wheels, so I didn't know that that was also like a paying job. Maybe it is in different states or something. I don't know. Hmm. Or maybe they don't have enough volunteers, so they pay people to do it. I don't know. Benny and Stabes find Gary about to deliver a meal in an apartment hallway. They tell him that they're bringing him in. Just then, the most precious elderly woman in a robe answers the door. And she's super bummed that Gary and his friends can't stay and hang out with her. So he clearly has relationships with the people that he delivers to. Mm -hmm. Back at the precinct, Staves is interviewing Gary. Stabler asks him why he stole from Donna Brooke. And Gary goes, I didn't. The bitch is lying. He delivers this line like he's reading it to a group of kindergartners. It's like, I didn't. The bitch is lying. Licks his fingers and turns the page. <laughs> he also says he hated Donna, but he didn't kill her. Benny comes in with some evidence bags. Ooh, what's in them? Apparently, Gary still had Donna's house keys. And he responds to that by saying he just didn't get a chance to return them yet. Donna's late husband's watch was also found among Gary's belongings. He said mm-hmm. he took that because he was mad that she docked him for being late one day. A $10,000 Rolex for $10? Doc and pay. Does that sound fair, kids? No. <laughs> was Gary lying or was the bitch lying? <laughs> Gary was lying. Okay. Even th- that's still the kids. <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> so even though he got busted for that, Gary said he'd never steal from Susan. She was a fucking sweetheart. He also denies knowing Claudia at all, even though he was listed as her nurse when he was working at RDH. Gary says RDH or somebody is setting him up and tells them to check the files. Behind the glass in Cragen's library where that guy was reading those kids' books, <laughs> he has to talk to a lawyer, so he asked the kids to go into the kids' corner. <laughs> Everybody hop on a computer. It's time for Oregon Trail. Uh, yes. He has a little cardigan and little glasses. And I'm over in the drawers trying to figure out the Dewey Decimal System because that was going to be important <laughs> for my adulthood. Right. Anyways, Novak's in there. Cragen asks Novak if what Gary is saying will be enough to subpoena the files. Novak's going to get started on a warrant for the files. But since Gary is saying this is a frame job, she wants the documents to be authenticated. Now we're at the office of forensic document expert Pat Fisher. This dude was in a sci-fi short film called Doppelbanger. And I, <laughs> no, watched, it, I watched it on YouTube and I put a link in my sources on svupod.com in case anybody else wants to watch it. It's just like a little 15 minute yeah. thing. And I was thinking about it as I fell asleep last night. I'm like, oh my God, I could have added so much to that storyline. Gary's signature is on the nursing log for Claudia. Pat finds that the signatures are identical, but nobody signs their name the exact same way every time, which means somebody pasted the signature onto the documents, then Xeroxed them to make it undetectable. Like when he lined them up, every single they were curve exact. of everything. Yeah. He calls this a transposition forgery. Gary is actually right. He is being set up. When does that ever fucking happen that they're right when they say that? Right. Um, probably a lot. Also, I mean, where they actually like prove that the cops actually take time. Oh, yeah. No, they don't. They don't actually prove it. They're like, get watch your head. And they don't (laughs) listen to them. And then they end up in prison for years. Mm -hmm. In the precinct, Stabler and Craig are talking about what the hell is going on. It has to be somebody from RDH. They're the only ones that have access to the victim's files. Since Gary is a thief, he was a good fall guy. Mm-hmm. Cragen wants to know why someone would kill these women. All of them are rich. Staler thinks maybe somebody made a profit off them dying. No duh, dude. Shut up. Yeah. Novak comes in and says, you're right. Someone made a mint. She pulled copies of the victim's wills. The beneficiary of each will is the Golden Memories Foundation, run by CEO of RDH and chairman of Golden Memories, Dr. Spivak. Oh, my God. In the precinct interview room, Spivak is there with his lawyer. Obviously, Spivak denies killing anyone. And his lawyer is like, this is ridiculous. Benson tells him they know about the donations to Golden Memories. Benson says he kills those women and then he gets the money faster. Spivak's lawyer says the money goes to seniors in poverty, not Spivak. And then he says he's doing fucking fine financially. He doesn't need their money. He says he started the foundation to give back. And then Benson says, you gave these three women back to God. Does that count? And I was like, geez. God. Also, I like that that's his defense. You know, I I am fine. I don't need their money because that's what makes people stop doing evil shit. And they're like, oh, that's enough money. This is my quota of money that I need. I don't need any more. And that's why we know everything works really well and trickle down economics are perfect. (laughs) His lawyer pipes up and says, excuse me, aren't we missing something here? Like evidence? Then she says that Spivak having access to victims' homes and profiting off their death isn't probable cause for an arrest. I was like, wow, okay, I mean, I guess you need more than that. Yeah. Mm. So they fucking take off. Spivak looked at them pretty satisfied, and then I wrote, it was probably his sister. Ooh. I don't remember when I got there. I got there at some point, but I don't think it was that early. In the precinct, Staves is at his locker, real pissed about the doctor being Mm -hmm. a liar. Huang doesn't think Spivak is guilty, though. 
Staler feels like staying angry and being a total dick for no reason and asks if Wong has a reason or if he's just siding with him because he's a doctor. What? That's the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Wong's like, I'm going to ignore the roids talking, buddy. A doctor would have mm-hmm. covered their tracks better. Mm-hmm. Also, yep. the fact that they were all choked to death points to rage. It doesn't make sense the killings were just about money when they were so brutally personal. Cragen mm-hmm. says they need to find out if he even profited off the deaths, but they don't have enough on Spivak to subpoena his financials. But Golden Memories is a nonprofit, so the foundation's books are public record. Public record. Oh, shit. Benny and Stabes have to talk to the forensic accountant. The forensic accountant, who's rocking a mid-90s Elaine Bennis hairdo, tells them the foundation brought in $675,000 the year before. And most of that money went to the care of two patients. But those patients Mm. have been dead since 1996. She checked with Social Security. Oh, shit. Phony records and pocketing Mm -hmm. the cash? That's enough for a search warrant. Munch and Toots are in the apartment of Matt Spivak to search it. Toots is walking through it like a real estate agent. 3,000 square feet, beautiful views, great natural light, walkable restaurants, private parking. Ugh, what can I do to get you in this apartment? Munch is going through shit on the desk, though, actually, like, doing cop stuff. He finds statements for maxed out credit cards. Dude Mm. is a chronic gambler. When they check the answering Mm. machine, there's a message from an angry guy reading directly from his script. Hey, Spivak, what's up, Doc? You're late on your payment. Pay me in carrot cigars or we're coming over. What's up, Doc? Carrot cigars. (laughs) Got it. I got it. I was there with you the whole way. And for the rest of our lives, I love you. And a bunch of toots. We were all there together. Toots, Uh, it was like really serious. And they were like, oh, listen to this voicemail. And you and I are in the background with carrots going like, give me the money. Yeah. Albuquerque. Toots Ugh. finds a framed photo of Spivak rock climbing right as Munch finds his rock climbing bag. And there's mm. special rock climbing rope, just like the rope used to strangle the victims. <gasps> wow, mm. this is all coming up guilty. Millhouse. Millhouse. Guilty, I mean. <laughs> now we're at the RDH office. Ooh, the music is all swelly. Mm. Benson and Stabler are taken to Spivak by his sister. She's upset and says that they should wait because he's in a meeting. And she's like, you're wrong about him. Spivak's sister doesn't believe that he could be the one that killed the patients because he's not. Mm. Okay? It's you, you stupid bitch. She knocks on the door and interrupts his meeting and he's super upset and comes over and he's like, damn it, Emma. I told you no interruptions. Then sees Benny and Stabler in the doorway and he's like, officers? Detectives? I would never... How many times people refer to them as detectives? I would never do that. I would never say detectives. I'd be like, hey, guys, you guys, I don't know. Yeah, hey guys. it's like, what can I do for you guys? Detectives. Um, yeah, I would. What can I do for you, Kappas? I would you can put it. me in the paddy wagon. Ha-cha-cha-cha. Hello, uh, professional, professional crime fighters. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Look at these two gum shoes. <laughs> I don't know your names, but you're inducing stress diarrhea. What can I do for you? <laughs> Why do I feel like I'm hiding a bag of heroin in my butthole? <laughs> I have never done heroin except for that one time. You know and that mean? was accidental. Uh, it wasn't. Yours wasn't? Oh. I know people who have done a variety of drugs accidentally, mm-hmm. including myself. Even though I wouldn't call it an accident. I'm just like, what are we up for? So yeah. I guess it doesn't really count for me. <laughs> Benson and Stabler go in and arrest him for murder in the first degree in front of a potential new client. Looks like she'll be going elsewhere. 
Bow, 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 bow. Stop it. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of Seinfeld stuff lately. So good. Spivak yells at Emma and he's like, what the hell did you tell him? And she's like, nothing, I swear, Matt. And I was like, um, what? His name is Matt, I guess. Yeah. So now we're at the arraignment. So Spivak pleads not guilty, of course. Emma, Spivak's sister, is in the courtroom. She's looking super worried. Novak says to the judge she wants remand. He swindled three elderly women out of money and killed them. And the funds haven't been recovered. So he's a for sure flight risk. Hmm. Spivak's lawyer pipes up and says, my client is a respected member of the community. And the judge tells her to save it. And he's like, unfortunately for your client, I have an 80 year old mother. And I didn't like that he blatantly said out loud that he was biased. He's a judge. Mm, 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 I was like, I don't like that. Yeah. You know, I'm like, that's pretty not awesome. Setting things up for that lawyer to go, bloop, new judge. Or just, just, you know, they're supposed to be unbiased. Spivak yells that he didn't kill anyone, and the judge sets the bail at 500 thousand spivak's lawyer tries to negotiate a deal with novak right afterwards she says he will plead guilty for the fraud but doesn't want murder stuff you want me to go to prison for murder i'll say that i stole from them that sounds fair novak's like um hell no not enough he needs to plead guilty for three counts of murder too and she'll take the death penalty off the table emma gets upset when she hears the death penalty in general she's like what's going on oh my god spivak's lawyer tells emma to relax that novak is bluffing she really doesn't have a case and they take off to go bail him out. So now Novak, Benson, and Stabler are doing a little walk and talk. Novak says that Spivak's lawyer isn't a dummy. The evidence for fraud is solid, but the murder evidence is purely circumstantial. Stabler says that the climbing rope that they found in Spivak's apartment matches the victim's neck. They didn't find any blood or skin cells on the rope, but it matches. Stabler thinks that maybe Spivak cut off like three feet of rope to strangle and throws it away. I don't think that's a thing with climbing rope. I don't know. I don't think you can just cut a piece of climbing rope that's not afraid. A, you could go look at that rope and see if it was cut. B, that would completely compromise the strength of the rope, I would think. I have no idea. I mean, because if it's made to not fray and you just cut it, I feel like it's just... I, I haven't done an outdoor activity since I was in fourth grade. I have no idea. I mean... I haven't either. I've never even climbed, but you know what I mean? Like, these are special ropes. You know what I mean? I guess, yeah. They think Spivak's sister, Emma, forged the nurse logs, which makes her a co-conspirator. So they, they're bringing her in for a little chatteroo. And then I wrote, I wrote, I totally think this whole innocent girl is an act for mm. real. She's setting up her brother. She's going to have a crazy twist at the end and get all weird and mean. Yeah. But she doesn't. She just gets weird. She just gets I thought she was going to be like, you caught me, you motherfuckers. Like that one lady. Yeah. At first I was like, God, is Jane Krakowski not doing a good job acting? Because she's so like timid and quiet and whatever. No, no, no. She's good yeah. at acting, and that was what she was going for. Because at the end, whew, she just num yeah. num num with that scene. Car tire squeal. Benny and Stapes <laughs> pull up in front of RDH, and a beat cop tells them Emma was attacked and almost choked to death. And this is where I said, whoa, this makes me think it's her. Yeah. <laughs> there, I got it. Inside, she tells them she doesn't know who did it, but she was, like, really pretty. Uh <laughs> She had a purple ligature mark around her neck. My favorite Kimmy Schmidt scene, and I'm, I've probably said this in the pod, when she offers her a bottle of Evian and she's like, no thanks, and she just throws it away <laughs> instead of putting it back. <laughs> so they're like, Emma, come on, we know. And she's like, oh, fine, it was my brother. I want to talk the way that she talks on 30 Rock. It was my brother. He asked for money. 
But I said I wouldn't give him any. You've never been to the cleave? <laughs> God, what is that word she says with three syllables on 30 Rock? That's two syllables. Oh, I'll um, bring me the camera. That's what she says. The camera. camera. Yes, that's it. I need to look to camera. <laughs> Emma says that her brother asked for money, but she told him she wouldn't give him any. So then he choked her. Mm. In Spivak's apartment, the music swells so much it can't even get its rings off without dish soap. Toots, Munch, and Swat, boom, enter the apartment. Guns drawn. Spivak's not home. They're like, he's probably getting money from some other old lady. Toots checks his cordless phone call log. <laughs> Spivak got a call from a client, Vivian Callis, at 5.05 p.m., Squish, battering ram through the apartment door of Vivian Callis. SWAT, Benson, mm -hmm. and Stabler enter, guns drawn. SWAT's everywhere this episode. Vivian is dead in her bed. A gun is next to her hand, and the, and the phone is in the bed with the receiver near her head. Stabler sees Spivak on the floor, dead, but from a gunshot wound to the chest with the climbing rope across him. This screams orgy yeah. of evidence. I know. It screams super staged. Yes. You know? Mm -hmm. Later, Huang arrives. CSU is on the scene. Wang is shocked. Vivian killed Spivak. Fucking Stabler gloats a little bit. He's like, guess you weren't right about the doctor. I'm stupid and I fucking hate my kids. <laughs> CSU, Judy, says Vivian wasn't that great of a shot. She actually had missed once, then got a lucky shot at his heart. She's leaning down over the bed like Vivian was on her knees shooting Spivak. And I was like, no fucking way. There's no way that's going on. Mm -hmm. Wong asks why Judy says the shot was lucky. Judy says Spivak's blood was congealed when they were found and that takes at least three hours and all of the lights were off when they got there. She shot him in the dark. Bullshit. Benson says that CSU found jewelry in his pockets too and that doesn't make sense because the killer doesn't steal shit, right? But then he's broke. I don't know. But it's also that orgy of evidence thing where it's like, look at this lets them know. Yeah. That's what happened. Stabler tells Wong that Vivian called Spivak and he rushed over to rip her off for some travel cash. Vivian could have had a stroke from the fear that came with shooting Spivak because her left side had been contracted. Huang doesn't think the stroke makes sense. None of Vivian's meds are for cardio problems. And if she was so scared, how did she shoot him right in the heart in the dark? Huang says a stroke doesn't make sense. They're really trying to make some shit happen that didn't. Yeah, they don't usually do that. That's so weird. <laughs> Now we're at the Emmy office. Corner Warner says that Vivian did have a stroke, but it wasn't from fear. She was injected with air in her neck. Staler says that it must have been a third person in the room with Spivak and Vivian, and Corner Warner agrees. Mm. Corner Warner says that only a medical professional would know about air embolisms or know how to do it properly. Mm. Not now. There's YouTube. Stabler thinks Emma is the third person. She's the only other person with access to everything Spivak has access to. Yeah. Now we're at the precinct. The gang's all hanging out. There's a fire going. They're making <laughs> s'mores. They're using peanut butter because it's extra good. Mm. Cragen asks why Emma. Stabler thinks that maybe Emma and Spivak were in on the murders together. And then she finds out that Spivak was going to run and leave her to deal with everything. Benson thinks Emma killed Vivian, then called Spivak and got him to come to the apartment saying Vivian was sick. She shoots him, then puts Vivian's prints on the gun and phone, etc. Emma was strangled two hours after after her brother was killed. So Stabler's pretty sure she strangled herself. Huang all of a sudden is standing there behind everybody. He just, he's just there. Yeah. It was so fucking, he was just like, whoop. He does it a lot. Yeah. He's like, hey guys, 
I got some shit. He pulls out a rope. He tosses it to Stabler and he says, strangle me. And Stabler looks all cheeky and says, I'll try. And I fucking hard splooshed. This and you know I did. was the hottest. <laughs> My note here, I was like, I didn't do any notes for this scene because it was yours, except I wrote the hottest moment between Stabes and Huang. Huang, strangle mm-hmm. me. Stabes, I'll try. And when I was typing it, I was like, I got like a shiver. I was like, oh. Uh, the uh, way so... he said strangle me. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I know. Uh, and then fucking Stabler was like, ah, I'll try. It was like, a, like yeah, smiled. it was hot. It was a hot little. It was fucking hot. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, about um, figuring out this murderer. Oh, sorry. I know. Completely but I'm like, separately, on. it was a really hot little moment. Yeah. If like if every if he had said that and everything got dark and everybody disappeared and, and there was just like a spotlight shining down on them, I'd be like, oh, here we fucking go. Like in West Side Story when that happens at the dance. Where's what's her nuts? Deorifice or whatever. <laughs> my nickname in high school, Deorifice. <laughs> okay, so Wong walks them through the ligature marks on the victims. They're all angled downward, but Spivak is like six feet tall, which would angle the markings upwards, which means they were strangled by someone who was shorter than they were. Emma is 5'3". First of all, no fucking way that bitch is 5'3". She's like 5'5 five, five at least. She's 5'6". Well, people always say that celebrities, people they see on TV and movies and stuff are always like way tinier in person. Well, they should have portrayed that then. Oh. <laughs> Anyways, Stabler and Wong switch sides. They go back and forth. It's hot. All of a sudden, my pants get super tight. <laughs> <laughs> Tight. Kragen says the rope demo wasn't enough. They need a confession from Emma or she gets away with f- like fucking five murders. Yeah. At Emma's house, Benny and Stabes go to talk to her. They do the, hey, you poor thing. We know you're sad, but we just got to talk to you. Mm. She says that she'd been warning Spivak and she can't believe he's dead. She's got old home movies playing on a projector. And on the movie, the brother and mom are playing and smiling while the sister is off on the side playing alone, staring at them like one of the Shining twins. (laughs) I literally took a note of that too. It's like her mom is like really only paying attention to her brother the whole time, which I thought was really interesting. And then we find out later. Yeah. It's creepy and obvious as fuck. Yeah. She tells Benny and Stabes their mother died of a stroke seven years ago. And there's photos of her Mm. mom all over the walls. Mm. Stabes like, Emma, can you tell us again about your strangulation? And then tells her "Hmm, her brother was dead by the time EMS responded. So it's just kind of weird, you know? Mm -hmm. And she gets defensive and kind of dodgy and she's like I passed out I called 911 when I woke up so I have no idea I was getting super flustered and says her brother killed Vivian but they tell her that he was ruled out they don't know who killed her and that's why they're asking Emma Mm. she looks to camera and says (laughs) if I think of anything I'll call you right away squat double door open to hallway Huang Stabler and Novak walk and talk I'm trying to say other stuff uh, besides boom (laughs) It's not working, but... Did you just yell squat? Yeah. (laughs) No, don't. That's like me yelling slice. Squat! Huang says they need to exhume Emma and Spivak's mom to see how she was killed. And Novak's like, good luck getting that approved. (laughs) Huang and Staves have got the whole thing figured out. Emma didn't get Mm -hmm. the attention that her brother got from their mom, so she started killing elderly women. But she used the rope and not the stroke thing because she wanted to set up her brother because fuck him. Novak sees what they're saying and understands that their mom was probably Emma's first victim Mm. and tells them, She just needs to establish that mom died of the air-induced stroke, which would get them probable cause. Stabes goes, yeah, that sounds good, but Emma's not going to fry herself by letting us dig up her mom. That's when Huang asks Novak if she knows any friendly judges. (laughs) Knock, knock, knock. 
Novak mm. is at Judge Terahoon's house. I love this whole fucking scene. Me too. It kicks off great for her because he opens the door and is like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> Yeah. She's like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's late. He has her come in. He's annoyed because she interrupted his poker game with the other judges. Legit sitting at this poker table are all of the woodland creatures. Walrus judge, mm -hmm. mole judge, owl judge, rabbit judge. They're sitting around a tree stump and the poker chips are little river rocks and pine cones. <laughs> Oh my God. And what's her face is there? The one, the sassy lady that Petrovsky we love. Petrovsky is also there. She, Petrovsky, I don't think, we haven't yeah. assigned her an animal, but I don't think she is one. I think she's just the, the caretaker of the forest. <gasps> That's what I was going to say. Oh, she's the Christopher. I was going to say caretaker. <laughs> yeah. Is that because we're full of misogyny and we don't know it? And we're like, well, she's the woman. So she has to mind mm, the forest. Probably. But maybe she, she can be the Christopher Robin and not the fucking Snow White. How's that? Yeah. Oh, God, I wasn't thinking like that. Like, I was thinking more like zoolog like zookeeper. <laughs> That's oh, like what the, I was thinking. The, the Jane Goodall. Yeah. So Novak's standing at the doorway of this room full of all of her fears and goes, I've had this nightmare before, only I was naked. <laughs> it got a huge laugh. JK, it absolutely did not. Mm -hmm. Petrovsky was like, uh, cool. Yeah. She said charming. Mm. Terhoon's like, what the shit do you want, Casey? Novak explains the whole deal, gets grilled by all of these judges, but is able to really explain herself. She asks Terhoon to yeah. sign the exhumation order, and he begrudgingly signs it. And he's like, just can you leave? But it was enough. They they all asked her. It was like every angle was explored because every fucking yeah. judge was there. I loved it. That was such a good little They're scene. They're like, why this? Why that? Why this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then she left. Ah, 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 ah. 15 birds grabbed her dress. They plopped a beret on her head. And they fluttered off. <laughs> so now we're at the Sherman Cemetery in Brooklyn. Corner Warner, Benson, and Stabes are doing a little walk and talk again. Stabler's worried that the body will be too deteriorated. Corner Warner says that New York State requires all cadavers to be embalmed. So her skin could still be intact enough to show the injection mark. The casket is lifted. Benson Stabler noticed that Emma and Matt's names and birth dates are on the family plot stone. It turns out they were twins. They were born six days after my birthday, but in 1971. Twins! twins. And they were in all the Doublemint commercials. Yeah, and it's weird. They were like, it's so weird to have your kids' names on. I'm like, is it though? I mean, I don't know. I, I would feel weird about it, but... I suppose like when you get older, your kids are going to have spouses and shit too. Yeah, that is weird. You know, not it is kind of weird. Yeah, unless it's like a whole yeah. ass generational mausoleum. Yeah, I think that's kind of weird now that I think about it. So I was like, that's not that weird, but it is. Also, whatever your family traditions are and stuff are fine, but they are painting a picture of like, yeah. like a, a really like, person, so. Yeah, so in the precinct, Huang confirms that Matt and Emma are fraternal twins. Twins. Okay. Twins. <laughs> em Emma was born two blocks, I mean, two minutes after her brother. <laughs> <laughs> they think she's been following in his footsteps ever since. She hates her brother, but is bound to him. Bound to him. That's why she used the rope. Welcome. I'm like, serial killers are so weird. I know. Yeah, that was a really deep dive where it's like she really thought about it. Really thought about like, right. I'm going to use the rope because I'm bound to him. Mm. What binds? Fucking eggs? Not good enough. <laughs> rope. <laughs> That was a baking joke. Uh, Corner Warner shows them a pretty fucking weird, disturbing picture of the mom's mummified neck that has the injection mark in the carotid artery. But there's no way to prove that Emma used air embolism thingy on her mom. Stabler says that Emma doesn't know that, though. <laughs> so they can lie to her. 
<laughs> and it's legal. Huang sends them on their way with a whisper of a warning. Ooh. Emma spent her whole life hating her mom. If they confront her with what she did, she'll never talk. Huang says they're going to need more than empathy with Emma. She needs an ally. They need to reenact the sibling rivalry between her and her brother to get her to talk. Oh, this scene is crazy. So later, Emma arrives. Stabler's really a good act. This is good acting on Stabler. This is good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, it was because I, rem- I okay. just remember it when you were saying it. That was a genuine. <laughs> that wasn't me being a little dick. Uh that was me genuinely being like, yeah. And it was a little hot again. So like. It was I, a little hot. Uh-huh, yeah. I was like, when he's like, get over here, get over here. Oof. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, I'd be like, yeah. I'd be like, strangle me. <laughs> <I'll stop>. <laughs> <laughs> so later Emma arrives at the precinct. First Benson takes her into like one of those interview rooms. Mm-hmm. Benson tells her that they had her come there so that they could personally apologize to her because they had made a mistake. They searched her brother's apartment and found the rope that matched the strangle marks. Stabler comes in and interrupts Benson and points at her hotly and is like he forcefully <laughs> tells her to come here like four times and so Benson's like what's up? Benson gets up to go talk to him outside of the door but Stabler slams his hand and like kind of keeps the door open. He starts fucking yelling at her about apologizing to Emma he gets in fucking Benson's face and he's like I'm in charge this is my case and Benson says please don't talk to me like that in front of her we're equals and he goes right and starts laughing and busts into the room with Emma and says did she fucking bring you down here yeah then gets in Benson's face again and says you brought her down here to get all the credit didn't you and Benson says no I brought her down here because I knew you wouldn't apologize and Slaver's like you're goddamn right about that then he points at Emma and he's like you knew all along about your brother's gambling debts and using the foundation money and you didn't do anything about it and then he calls her a liar and pathetic for helping him cover things up and he's like you protect your brother and he almost kills you Benson's like leave her alone and he's like shut up <laughs> leave her alone <laughs> Stabler then says women shouldn't be cops or doctors because they're weak and stupid. And I was like, damn. Mm. And then takes off and Benson goes back into the room and closes the door. And Emma's upset that Stabler talked to Benson that way. Benson kind of just sits down and she was like, I'm sorry. And like, it's like rubbing her forehead. And Emma begins to open up a little bit. She gets what this is like. She's like, I've always been the little helper and getting ordered around. This is so, the whole episode is a little, um, I I hate it. I don't. There's no way she fell for that. I don't, but just the whole path of getting here. And then they're like, and they do this, this is what can happen in a drunk driving performance in front of a high school kind of acting situation. Yeah. And she completely falls for it. I'm Emma, okay? I'm sitting there going, I've been murdering people, including my mom, and the heat's on me. Benny's like, my God. I wouldn't be like, yeah, I get it. I'd be like, wow, he really sucks. And bye. Oh. (laughs) Thanks yeah. for the apology. Like, I would leave. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Benson starts opening up about her mom being an alcoholic, and the only time she felt free was after her mom died. And Emma's like, all mothers are the same. They treat you like dirt. And Benson's like, but you're a nurse. I bet you were great with your mom. Emma says that her mom had cancer, and Emma took care of her for five years while her brother was off at school. Then when her brother was a doctor, he made Emma work for him, taking care of people that were just like their mom, ordering her around, making her wash their clothes and walk the dogs and stuff. Emma says she did all of the work taking care of all those people, but they treated her brother like the god. Benson's like, well, how did you do it? Like, come Emma's, she got like tears streaming down her eyes and mm-hmm. she's smiling and she's like a little shot of air. Benson's like, well, what do you mean? And Emma says when she was in nursing school, she would see women at their mom's bedsides fucking trapped like she was. 
Benson says, so you help them. And she's got this creepy smile and tears. And she's like, I set them free. Benson asks how many she gave the shots of air to. And she says, dozens. And then Benson asks her if she remembers any of their names. And she just says, they were all called Mama. And I was like, fucking woof, Toyota. Toy fucking Oda. This, uh, this is a good episode. Th- this is the... Well, this whole scene from when she starts talking about her mom, I'm like, mm, did she just call her mama? And then she calls her that for the rest of the thing. And so then mm-hmm. when she said, they were all called mama, I was like, holy shit. Yeah. It's like super rare that women are serial killers anyways. So, mm-hmm. but then like dozens, I'm like, there are dozens damn. of us. I, I almost typed that in and then I was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> this is how we do it. Okay. (laughs) Charles Cullen was born on February 22nd, 1960 in West Orange, New Jersey. Okay. He was the youngest of eight, and when he was seven months old, his father passed away. Growing up was super tough on him. He was picked on and bullied pretty mercilessly. And there's a theme throughout his life of suicide attempts and psychiatric hospital stays and being treated for depression. So his first attempt was when he was nine years old by drinking chemicals from a children's chemistry set. Then when he was 17, his mom was killed in a car accident and Cullen did not handle it well. He said, quote, Mother was the only person at that time that sort of kept a cushion between what was happening in that house and me. With her gone, I just felt very unprotected. Out of high school, Cullen joined the Navy but was bullied there as well and was eventually medically discharged in 1984 after a suicide attempt and multiple stays in the Navy psychiatric ward. What was going on at the house? He was just being terribly bullied and picked on. His sister's boyfriends were awful to him. Oh, okay. Mm. He decided to go back to school at Mountainside Hospital Nursing School in Montclair, New Jersey, and graduated president of his class in June of 1987. He decided his life's work was to help people. He was initially hired at St. Barnabas Medical in Livingston. It was there that he contaminated IV fluid bags with insulin, some not even given to particular patients he knew, though he did give one to a patient assigned to him that was suffering with AIDS. The patient died of the insulin overdose, as did many others. The hospital began an investigation regarding the IV bags with evidence pointing to him, but the result was just the hospital asking Cullen to resign. Mm. He went on to be hired at Warren Hospital. This is where Cullen began using digoxin on patients. Digoxin is normally a drug used to treat heart failure, so when given in a lethal dose to a patient who doesn't need the drug, it causes arrhythmia where the heart beats too quickly and the patient dies. He started using digoxin because it would work over a period of a couple of hours and nobody knew what was going on. So he, I talk about this later, but to explain like why he's doing this, he decided that he couldn't handle seeing people suffer. So it was mercy killing. Angel of death or whatever the fuck they call it. Yeah. That's stupid, but okay. So at Warren, he would administer the drug and later, seemingly out of nowhere, patients would code and die. Mm. Eventually, one elderly woman told other staff that a nurse who was not assigned to her had come into her room and stuck her with a needle as she laid in her hospital bed. Hmm. And they were like, what? A few hours later, she died. There was an investigation after that, but Cullen passed a lie detector test given to him and all the other staff. Mm -hmm. He again was asked to resign. Moving on to Hunter did medical, Cullen continued administering digoxin to patients, killing them, as well as at a nursing home he was working at. 
1999, he worked at Lehigh Valley Hospital and St. Luke's, continuing this practice. He later said that he wanted to help people, like I had told you before, but when he saw them hurting, he just wanted to end their suffering. But once he started, he couldn't stop. In January of 2000, Charles Cullen attempted suicide again, and this whole time he's being treated for depression. Nurse Pat Medellin worked with Cullen in the ICU at St. Luke's, and in 2002, Cullen was quietly escorted out of the hospital and resigned. Nurse Pat and the other staff were like, what the fuck? He's a good nurse. Why would they just fire him like that? Yeah. Nursing shortage. So, like, he continues to be hired because there's a nursing shortage, right? So they're like, he's getting either recommendations from his prior positions or getting neutral reviews. Like, they're not saying anything about him. And they're not looking for the best of the best because they're just looking for fucking nurses at this point. Yeah. And even these nurses are like, he's a decent nurse. What the fuck is going on? Like, why are they firing him? After a little digging, Nurse Pat found out the reason he was fired was that 50 vials of medication were found in the discarded needle box. Okay. Some had been used and some hadn't. Okay. These particular medications being stolen didn't make sense because they didn't have any street value. They weren't like fucking drugs drugs so yeah. pat was like i'm still curious and she started putting shit together she remembered that there was a time that twice within one week she had two very stable patients that coded out of nowhere uh-huh. remembering that as odd she decided to go back and make notes of every patient who had died in the time colin was at the hospital she compared them to the dates times etc lined it all up did like a fucking flow chart there were 67 deaths people die at the hospital statistically it would have made sense for one particular nurse to maybe have been present for 17 of these deaths out of 67 deaths cullen was present for 40 Mm. she took this information and reached out to her manager and director and let them know that she was sure cullen was responsible for all of these deaths and that he was fucking killing people yeah They told her they were sure that that wasn't true. There had been an internal investigation and there was nothing. St. Luke's was a U.S. top 100 rated hospital. They got him out of there quickly and quietly. Mm -hmm. Lawsuits were not good for a hospital's bottom line. If there were to be a crazy investigation or lawsuits, the hospital would be financially fucked. And Pat saw this. She was like, this is what this looks like to me. So she wasn't going to shut up and turned over the information that she had to the state police. And shortly into their investigation, it was closed. So this pattern is emerging, right? Police would get reports of this strange shit happening, an investigation would begin, and an actual police investigation would die due to lack of evidence. Hospitals were protecting the institution rather than the patients. Of course, yeah. In 2002, Cullen moved on to the ICU at Somerset Medical. Amy Logren and Donna Hargreaves were both critical care nurses at the ICU as well. And they both worked with Cullen and called themselves the Three Musketeers. Like, they were all BFFs. They were teammates on the floor. They had nothing but amazing things to say about him. He really cared. He was just a really great colleague and friend. Amy specifically said she felt a need to protect him because he gave off a bullied as a kid energy, Okay, which she was correct about. Um, And they became really close friends and confidants. 
she trusted him very much. In the summer of 2003, during Cullen's time at Somerset, the other nurses thought there was something wrong with the lab because their patient's results were coming back super skewed. Like they would do blood work, send it to the lab, and things would come back and not make sense to them. So the go-to person was Charlie Cullen because he was the most versed in all things medicine. Like you could ask him about anything regarding any medication and he would be able to tell you. Or So they'd go to Cullen and be like, dude, what's going on here? And he would explain it away, right? Mm-hmm. It still didn't make sense. So a nurse called the poison control center to get some information because she's like, I got to figure out what's going on here. This is so weird. Bruce Ruck, managing director of New Jersey Poison Control, spoke to her. So she tells him she's concerned because this patient's digoxin level kept rising even though they weren't getting that medication anymore. Like she's like, this person hasn't had digoxin in two days. The level should be going down, you know? They also had another dig toxicity death in that same unit. So she was like, I don't know. It seems like a lab error, right? It triggered something for Bruce. And he was like, have any patients had really low blood sugar lately, like hypoglycemia? And she goes, strangely, yeah. There were two patients that went hypoglycemic out of the blue. That's when Bruce told her to call the police because somebody was intentionally doing this and killing patients. Mm. Bruce called the hospital back a couple days later to follow up because he's like, this is super fucked up. This is clearly somebody doing this intentionally. I'm going to call back and check in. And this is not something that's crazy for poison control to do. Like I've had things happen at home and have poison control call me a couple days later to be like, hey, just calling to follow up. You know, when Darla ate that medication and had to go to the ER, I was on the phone mm-hmm. with poison control and they're like, call 911. They called me a couple days later to check on her. Um, yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I mean, I think it's protocol. You're like, oh, that's nice. It was just a really thought. It did <laughs> feel really nice. I was like, thank you so yeah. much. And they were like, I'm literally checking a box. No, they it was it was very the the way this woman spoke to me and everything was just really really great because I was freaking out. Yeah. Bruce calls the hospital back a couple of days later. He's got a follow up. So when he called, he was told hospital administrators were working on it, but they couldn't share any more information with him. Bruce goes, "Uh, you guys need to stop whoever's doing this. This is intentional and super time sensitive because it's going to keep happening." But yeah. they wouldn't let him in on any information, right? Mm. Three months later, on Friday, October third. Commander Tim Braun at the Somerset Crimes Unit got a call from the Somerset County Prosecutor about a death at the hospital. Braun brings in lead detective Danny Baldwin, and together they went to a meeting with high-ranking staff of Somerset Medical, including risk manager Mary Lund. The administrators told police they were conducting an internal investigation and Mm -hmm. couldn't share too much information. Like, these are fucking detectives in the crime unit. This is wild. Yeah. It's like colleges, you know how they do that? Mm-hmm. They're like, um, what? Yeah. yeah. So they hand, they're like, okay, well, give us the files. They're like, okay, sure, we'll, we'll give them to you. And the cops are expecting to get this, just, just like a three inch binder, just like a bunch of files, a bunch of information. And they got like three sheets of paper. Yeah. There was also a post-it note that Baldwin eventually got a hold of, like randomly, with just a tiny, tiny bit of information. He's like, I'm going to follow up on this. The post-it was in reference to reports that had been made to police regarding the stolen meds that were found at Colin's previous job, okay? Mm-hmm. Baldwin contacts that detective to get more information. He didn't have much either. I mean, that case ended up getting closed. He couldn't get anything out of the hospital that he was trying to work with. So mm-hmm. Baldwin's little detective feelers went up. Something was going on in the system, and this investigation was going to be a 
big old problem. Okay. This whole time, Cullen is still working at Somerset during the investigation. And Braun and Baldwin are just not sleeping, freaking out, because they're like, we think he's killing people. Mm -hmm. In their investigation, police called the New Jersey Poison Control Center to ask about digoxin. Well, hello again, Bruce Ruck. And he was like, oh, hi, is this about the Somerset Hospital? Because we've been trying to get this shit going for a while, and we think people are being murdered. The medical director at Poison Control, Dr. Stephen Marcus, met with the detectives. He had recordings of conversations he had months prior with Mary Lund at Somerset Hospital. In the recordings, he had very directly let her know that these incidents needed to be reported to police or blood was on their hands. The only logical explanation was that this was being done intentionally. I mean, they couldn't have screamed it anymore, but there was only so much, you know, you can't follow something that there's no trail for. Right. And all of these things are happening so separately. They're just not being put together. Right. So after that conversation Stephen Marcus had had with Mary Lund, they still didn't give that information to police for three months. Baldwin called Mary Lund again. It's like this guy's been killing people forever and nobody's doing anything about it. And they like all kind of know about it. It's mm-hmm. fucking weird. So Baldwin's like, okay, I got to get moving on this case. He calls Mary Lund again because he wants to get the Pixis transaction list. Okay. The Pixis machine is the automated med dispenser used at hospitals. Mm-hmm. I always think of Nurse Jackie because I remember seeing them do it on there. A nurse inputs their information selects the patient and orders whatever medication they need for that patient. A little drawer pops open, they take the meds out, and it's recorded in a computer system. Uh Mary Lund told Detective Baldwin that the Pixis only kept that information for 30 days. And they were like, oh, damn it. But also, we don't trust this lady. Baldwin and Braun contact the manufacturer of the Pixis machine, which wasn't fucking hard. They're like, oh, this company's in California. Let's call them. The manufacturer's like, no, dude. Every single one of those trans transactions from the start is available and she's lying. What? So they paid Mary a little visit. Well, what do you know? She was able to call and get them the information they needed and it showed exactly what they knew it was gonna. More on that in a minute. They had a long way to go with more solid evidence together before being able to arrest him. So they found a discrepancy in his resume and had the hospital use that as a reason to fire him. That's all they did. They didn't give him any indication of anything. They were talking to his family members. They were doing, like, he didn't know this whole investigation was happening. What the hospital fired him over wasn't a big deal thing. It was just, he lied a little bit on his resume or something and you're fired. Yeah. His team, his BFFs at work, Amy and Donna, were so upset. This is bananas. He's so great. He's a leader. He's a teammate. The detectives start interviewing the staff after he's gone. But Mary Lund insisted on sitting in on these interviews. So detectives were like, oh my God, we're not going to get what we need out of people because they're afraid of this woman. This woman is the risk manager and also Mm -hmm. is kind of scary. In all of these interviews, Amy's name keeps coming up because she's super tight with him, right? And Baldwin was like, I want to talk to her specifically. So she goes into this interview with Baldwin, full bulldog. She was like, whatever this is about is absolute fucking bullshit. It's totally unhinged. There's no truth to it. Charlie is an amazing nurse. She was pissed. Probably feeling safe that Amy was going to go so hard for Cullen, Mary Lund left the room for one reason or another. She had something she had to go do, and she felt okay leaving Amy with Baldwin. It was then that Baldwin showed Amy Cullen's Pixis printouts. Okay. And she was fucking floored. She could also see what it said, what was going on. Okay. And it made her guard go down and it made her ability to see. Yeah. She got clarity in this moment, right? So shit started popping up for her and she was telling Baldwin about it. She remembered one time when a patient was in code blue. So she ran into the room. Colin was already in there injecting the patient, which was really confusing for her. He told Amy he was giving her lidocaine and she's like, well, that's weird. I'm in charge of ordering these meds. 
at this time, like she was the the code leader. And so it was weird that he would do that without her approval. But she's mm-hmm. like, okay, whatever. Like we have to stabilize this patient. That's totally fine. We're best friends, you know? Right. So the resident comes in, Amy's going down the checklist of this is what we're doing in this code blue right now and mentions the lidocaine. And the resident's like, what the fuck? He goes, who ordered this? Who ordered to give this patient lidocaine? And Amy, being the leader, trusting Cullen, goes, I fucking ordered it because that's my job right now. We're on the floor together. I'm the person who ordered this. And the resident goes, this patient is allergic to lidocaine. And that patient died. (gasps) Amy, up until that moment, had seen it as a terrible and unfortunate mistake. Yeah. She didn't realize that she had witnessed a murder. And this is when Baldwin quietly asked her, because she's like giving her information that he doesn't think he would have been able to get if Lund was in the room. And he goes, will you help me? And she's like, fuck yeah, because I'm here for my patients and I'm a good fucking nurse. Right. A couple days later, detectives go to her house, Baldwin and Braun, and she became crucial to translating all of these inner workings to them. They went over the Pixis printouts, asking her to let them know if things looked odd. The one thing that stood out big to her were all of the cancellations. So Colin would go under a patient's name, order Jijoxin, the drawer would open up, he would take the meds, and then he would immediately cancel the order. Mm. So that wasn't coming through. I don't know why they weren't checking that. I mean, there weren't the checks that maybe should have been happening mm-hmm. because it was a lot. It was happening a lot. Literally during this meeting with detectives, Mary Lund called Amy at her house, which was not normal. Okay. She starts telling Amy not to talk to the detectives and was kind of roundabout threatening her. Like she was like, okay, so you had this interview and we're kind of, you know, doing this internal thing. You don't really talk to them. And Amy's got her on speaker, like having the detectives listen. Yeah. And she's scared because she's like, this bitch could cost me my job. I could lose my job. And up until like nobody knew she had told Cullen this forever ago, but no one else knew she had cardiomyopathy and really fucking needed her insurance. So that could have been Mm. enough to get her to stop helping. Yeah. But she didn't. She kept helping because she's awesome. Detectives began recording phone conversations between Cullen and Amy then. And she just continued her friendship with him as normal so that they could keep track of him. He could have just gone out and gotten another job. Mm -hmm. Baldwin, Braun, and Amy would meet up regularly, pour over paperwork, looking for patterns. The hospital had given them very little at this point. And at one of these meetings, Amy was like, where are the charts from Cerner? And they were like, what? We don't know what that is. And she's like, oh my yeah. God, you guys. The, the Cerner are all of the patient records. Like, you should have all of their records. Um, mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to verify these patterns unless you have the Cerner charts. They knew that they weren't going to be able to get those out of Mary Lund. Like she didn't even tell them about them. So... Amy went to work and started printing out piles of patient records to bring back to the detectives. I don't know if that's a HIPAA violation. I think it might be. I'm not sure. But they needed them to verify the patterns that they were seeing. If they could prove one death, that would be enough to bring him in. They're going through all of this and they found one person that made a lot of sense. They thought the best possibility of getting him was the death of Florian Gall. Okay. 68-year-old priest Florian Gall was taken into Somerset ER in 2003 with trouble breathing where he was then intubated. He eventually stabilized and was moved from the ICU to CCU as he was improving. And then out of the blue, he just died. The toxicology report showed nothing suspicious, but the one thing he hadn't been tested for was digoxin. So detectives contact his sister. She'd always been suspicious of her brother's death and consented to a police exhumation. So they pull him up out of the ground. The medical examiner found an excessive amount of digoxin. His cause of death was changed from natural to homicide. Mm. 
Meanwhile, Colin had been hired at a new facility and called to tell his friend and former coworker Amy about his exciting new job. And the cops were like, fuck, dude, we need to arrest him before he starts killing people again. But they wanted really solid evidence to make sure the charges stuck. Mm -hmm. So they asked Amy to meet up with Colin and wear a wire. She calls up her buddy, let's go get dinner, throws on this wire and, and goes to meet her pal at this restaurant. They're just like chatting and vibing and whatever. And she gently starts to confront him, you know, letting mm -hmm. him know like, honey, I know what you were doing. I know what happened. Tell me about Florian Gall. At some point in this conversation, the wire stopped working. She didn't know this. It was after the wire stopped working that he changed. Amy later said about that moment, quote, I was not with my friend Charlie. It was emptiness. It wasn't darkness. It wasn't a monster. It was just nothingness. He didn't care about me. He didn't care about anything. He just said, mm. I want to go down fighting. Jeez. As he left the restaurant, detectives Baldwin and Braun stopped him outside and arrested him for the murder of Revan Gall. He clammed up in the interview and they were afraid they weren't going to get a confession. They didn't have that recorded, so they needed to get him to fucking say it. So they wanted Amy to talk to him. Amy agreed and was determined to be the one to get the confession. Mm -hmm. So she goes to the jail where Colin's being held. He's brought into a room. And Amy felt like Colin had always been a really good friend to her, like always had been really helpful, knew about her cardiomyopathy. You know, she thought that she could use that as an angle. Mm -hmm. And she did, like a fucking pro. She told him she was now being implicated in his wrongdoing. And this was his opportunity to be her hero. Mm -hmm. And then asked him, how did you kill Father Gall? He looked at her and said, I injected him with digoxin. Detectives pull Colin into another room and told him it was time to start talking. That just cracked open an entire confession. And mm -hmm. they were like, dude, he told us so much more. Like, we didn't even ask for everything. Everything that he told us, it was insane. He confessed and confirmed absolutely everything, including other things that he had been suspected of over the years. The insulin in the IV bags, uh, different drugs that he had used. There was one drug that he had used, Vecaronium, and it's a paralytic that completely paralyzes a person, but they are fully alert and awake. And when I say paralyzed, I mean like they can't blink, they can't breathe. So mm -hmm. they're paralyzed to death. And Amy's sitting there going, that mercy killing fucking line he gave me is bullshit. That is a brutal fucking way to die. Mm -hmm. And the, the insulin and the IV bags and shit, like, you didn't know who those were going to. I gave them to patients of mine that died. Yeah, definitely bullshit. He just wanted to kill people. It was like something he told himself. Some of these people were about to be discharged and were completely random. Mm -hmm. He yeah. also periodically used epinephrine, which when overdosed on can cause fatal cardiac arrhythmias. All of these things, if a toxicology report doesn't happen, is, you know, you can be like, oh, this was a heart attack. Oh, this was a, a natural death. During his confession, he initially told police he thought he may have killed 30 to 40 patients over his 16 years as a nurse and was just relieved to have been caught. I mean, he was crying, saying he just wished he would have been caught before. He just couldn't stop. He kept doing it. He kept telling himself he wasn't going to do it anymore, and then it would be overwhelming. He chose to waive representation and pled guilty, signing a plea deal to spare him from the death penalty. In this deal, he agreed to cooperate completely with the investigation. In March of 2006, he was sentenced to 18 consecutive life sentences. In the end, they confirmed the murder of 29 patients and the attempted murder of six. But experts believe he may have been responsible for at least 400 deaths. Holy shit. 
After his confession, New Jersey passed the Cullen Law, which requires healthcare providers to report to the state any intentional or unintentional conduct that could affect patient safety. And those reports must also be disclosed to future employers. And since then, there have been multiple states across the country that have put a lot more patient protective laws in place. Because, yeah, he should have been caught years, years and years before yeah. he actually was. The end. Hmm. I'm surprised I didn't know anything about that. That's pretty big. That's it a was, lot of yeah, fucking it was very big. people. All right. Well, fuck. Next week, we have season five, episode 24, Head. I actually think I remember this episode. So there's a perv that is like fucking videotaping people in, in a bathroom. Catches an actual oh. sexual assault of a minor on tape. From what I remember, it's like a woman and she has a brain tumor or something that made her do I, stuff. And I think I remember. Yes. It's got to be it because the thing is called Head. I think I remember this too. Yeah. Rate and review us. Email us at svupod at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to send us anything, P.O. Box 176, DeForest, Wisconsin, 53532. And check out our Instagram at svupod. Get merch and more at svupod.com. Join the Facebook group, svupod Elite Squad. And we have a chat group called Walk and Talk. It's super fun. And a book club now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> called What is it called? A single tomato or one tomato? Yeah, single tomato yeah. book club, I think they called it, yeah. Yeah. Hashtag a little bit loud for all your indie pod needs. And if you're a little indie pod, fucking hashtag a little bit loud so people can find you too. Yeah. Join the Patreon. We got tons of fucking content. An unbelievable amount. Yeah, that's it. Love you, bye. Love you, bye. Way down yonder on a Chattahoochee, never knew how much the muddy water meant to me. But I learned how to swim and I learned who I was. A lot about living and a little about love. Mmm, getting on a Friday night. Pyramid of cans in the pale moonlight. Talking about cars, dreaming about women. Never had a plan, just living for the minute. Take the tracksuit off, Benson. I always cut back to when she was Stabler's wife for no reason in a tracksuit. With the tiles. Yeah. Oh, oh, these won't do. Plastic menus. <laughs> Dusty Lee skis in his jeans. <laughs> so this dude Harvey has a fancy... Daddy, we're down. <laughs> okay. No one ever will love you as much as I do. <laughs> okay. And I didn't mean that in an emotionally abusive way. <laughs> Or did I? (laughs) (laughs) If it came across that way, maybe you should ask me about it because you can only trust me and nobody else and I'll be there for you. And to our Elite Squad patrons, Sonia W., Marissa M., Elky H., Annie G., Mary D., Andrew, Rebecca D., Miranda B., Shelby W., Lex, Emily T., Kayla W., Mallory G, Bonita R, Marin, Vanessa, Melanie G, Courtney W, Ursula S, Kate H, Uyana, Kayla J, Catherine M, Kate P, Jessica S, Nicole M, Acacia V, Katarina G, Danielle W, Kelsey D, Jana M, Joshua H, Tammy J, Bear, Crystal, Lucy M, Trisha S, Sam D, Mike Tack. Casey W, Abby W, Alexis J, Lauren T, Kaylin B, Camille Z, Nisha G, Maggie D, Kaylin, Katie M, Eliza W, Crystal B, Jessica P, Zan and J, Nada M, San, Christina D, Madison H, Emily, Victoria B, Scout G, Melissa M, Desiree D, Come Through Drew B, Amberly C, Sapphire, 
Monica K, Katie S, Trish S, Angela D, Brenna T, Andrea M, Natasha S, Andrea H, Miranda B, Al H, Nikki R, Sarah J, Caitlin S, Emily D, Katie H, and Lexi Y. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, so much. You really uh, help make this possible. Help you us make the, our pod world go round. Yeah. Make my pod world go round, round. Make my pod world go round, round, round. <laughs> I made that work really good. I did. You did. And uh, you had like a little vibrato in there. And I, I did? didn't give it the attention. It deserved. Yeah, you were like. <laughs> um, <laughs> just like that. It sounded that good. Oh, my God. All right. All right. Bye. I love you so much. I love you. Bye. Bye.